please welcome Vanessa Hua. Thanks for that wonderful introduction, Noel, and thank you all for coming here. I'm seeing people from college, from uh, UCR, from uh, you know my family. This is this is wonderful. So it's really special to be here with you tonight. So my first excerpt is from the story "Accepted." It occurred to me that I'd become too comfortable with breaking and entering. Back from field training, I'd leapt onto the windowsill in a single bound, no awkward scrambling, as though onto a pommel horse. I crouched, resting my hands lightly on the frame. My ponytail bobbed and then went still. In perfect balance, I could have carried a stack of books on my head, a debutante, but for the stench of dirt and sweat. I tiptoed in the dark until realizing my roommates were out. Too tired to shower, I collapsed onto the futon and fired up Julia's laptop to fill the void with light and noise. We'd met fall quarter after I studied her for a half hour while she sunbathed. Julia seemed like the kind of girl who adopted wounded birds and stray puppies, willing to help a newcomer in need. I told her I had nowhere to stay because of a mix-up in housing. Officials said they might be able to find something within a week or two, but until then... I'd be sleeping in the 24-hour room at the library. What a way to start freshman year. (laughs) Julia, a sophomore, invited me to crash in the room she shared with her best friend. One night turned into a week, another and another, and then we were at the end of the quarter, dead week, finals, and saying our goodbyes for the holidays. Without their knowledge, my roommates had aided and abetted me. My classmates considered me no different than them, These student body presidents, valedictorians, salutatorians, national merit scholars, model UN reps, academic decathletes, all-state swimmers, wrestlers, and other shining exemplars of America's youth. The rejection from admissions was a mistake. That's what I told myself after I clicked on the link and logged onto the portal last spring. Stanford had denied another Elaine Park, another in Irvine who'd also applied. I waited for a phone call of apology, along with an email with the correct link. I hadn't meant to lie, not at first, but when Jack Min donned his Stanford sweatshirt after receiving his acceptance, a senior tradition, I yanked my cardinal red hoodie out of the locker. Another week passed, and I posed with Jack for the school paper. When I showed my parents the article as proof of my acceptance, Appa held the newspaper with his fingertips as if it were bridal lace he was preserving on special order. He reeked of chemicals from the cleaners, the stink of exhaustion and servility. Assiduous, he said. His praise for my hard work. My vocab drills, which began nightly when I was in kindergarten, had fallen to him. For years, he'd been reading the dictionary for self-improvement, and the words we'd studied together coded what otherwise might remain unsaid. Sagacity, I said. I was thanking my father for his wisdom. In June, with graduation approaching, I politely alerted admissions of its error. You haven't received any notification, the woman asked. A rejection for another Elaine Park. Only then did I realize how ridiculous I sounded, Could I appeal the decision or get on the wait list, I asked? No, she gently said. She explained that those chosen off the wait list had been notified two weeks ago, and she wished me the best of luck. All those hours, all that money, 
The after-school academic cram programs, the cost kept us from moving out of our tiny two-bedroom apartment whose only amenity was its location in a desirable school district. Other sacrifices, Appa put off visiting the doctor until his colds turned into bronchitis and then pneumonia. Uma's eyes went bad, squinting at the alterations she did for extra cash at the dry cleaners where they both worked. Stanford was the only school to which I had applied, the only school my parents imagined me attending. On our sole family vacation, we'd piled into the car and drove to the university and back in a single day, a seven-hour trip each way, enough time to eat our gimbop rolls in the parking lot, snap photos of Hoover Tower, buy a sweatshirt, pick up a course catalog and a copy of the Stanford Daily, all of which I studied closely as an archaeologist trying to crack ancient runes. I was supposed to become a doctor, a doctor had title, respect, and would never be brushed off like my parents, never berated by customers, and never snubbed by sales clerks. I was supposed to buy my parents a sedan and a house in a gated community. When I asked the admissions officer if I could send additional letters of rec, her tone turned icy. We never reverse a decision officially re rendered. She hung up. The problem, I came to understand, was that my story was too typical. My scores, my accomplishments, and my volunteer work were identical to hundreds, maybe thousands of other applicants, and admissions had reached its quota of hard luck, hard-working children of immigrants. I'd been too honest, straightforward where I should have embellished, ordinary where I should have been fanciful. My classmate Jack had launched his own startup, sending used cell phones to Africa. <laughs> if only I'd been a homeless teen, or knit socks and mittens for orphans in China. If only I'd had cancer. <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> I love this collection. I adored it. And um, my first question was about the title, Deceit and Other Possibilities, um, because all of your characters seem like they're pretending or um, um, assuming some sort of identity, different identity. And I, I also like how you say, and other possibilities, as if this is um, a choice that these characters make. So my question to you was, in writing these stories, did you, were you conscious of this theme, or did it come later as you kind of assembled this collection together? Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote this over a long period of time. The first story I wrote, I think I started in 2000, and the last one I finished writing in 2014. So I didn't set out to write something where uh, it, it involves secrets and lies and deceit, but I realized once I had a stack of pages and was considering it as a collection that this was a theme that had emerged. Um, even though the settings are very different, there's one in East Africa, there's one with this pop star fling from Hong Kong, um, and, and in some ways they were reunited by that. And I, I wonder if that is part of the immigrant experience, immigrant or children of immigrants. Not that we're all liars, but there's a sense of striving and of trying to fake it until you make it, and there's so much that's a mystery outside the world of your family that you have to try and understand through observation and, and model yourself, whether it's some, something you read about in books or some, something that you develop as a way to survive in this country. So 
So let's talk about the sh- uh, short story you just read an excerpt from. Yeah. So actually, that's like a ripped from the headlines. That's based on something that really... You, we don't have to get in all the details. A real story. Well, well yeah. I, I mean, I can talk about it, but yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, sure. Um, so uh, several years ago, there was a woman, Asia Kim... And she had told everyone, she she was from Irvine, and she told everyone that she'd gotten into Stanford, and she went off to school, and similar to my story, she kind of gave a sob story, and people let her crash on campus for a good part of the year, and then she got caught. So what's interesting to me is people, a lot of people said, like, how could Stanford students be so gullible and naive? And I said, I know exactly how. <laughs> well, they're, the camp, they're, they're very trusting on campus. Um, but the other thing I noticed was um, there were other cases in the, the, the news. There was a case out of Irvine where a South Asian student had told his parents he'd gotten into med school. He didn't. During the graduation ceremony, he jumped in with the robes he'd rented and um, other people said, this guy isn't graduating with us, and that's how he got called out. There was a case at UC Riverside where a student, he was also Asian-American, he did not, he'd failed out, and he called in a bomb threat to halt graduation ceremonies. And there was another case on the East Coast where a Korean-American student said she'd gotten into a joint Harvard-Stanford program and that Mark Zuckerberg was trying to court her to attend. So these, these, it's sort of like, I was, obviously not all Asian Americans take that path, but there was something to the idea of deceit and this immense pressure that these kids must have been feeling that I wanted to explore in the story. So my, because I know you write a lot of nonfiction too. Yeah. So my question to you is when do you know, okay, this is a story I want to pursue as like a nonfiction story because you could have just written nonfiction based on all these stories that you just told us. But when do you decide, you know what, I want to explore this as a fictional piece? Yeah. I mean, in this case, she wasn't talking and I think she might've even changed her name because she's just disappeared. So in some ways, I think that's the best opportunity to write fiction when there just isn't much official record. Um, And I suppose I could have tried to pursue her, but I wanted to go my own way with creating this character. Um, But in the excerpt I'll be reading later, um, that was another instance where it was sparked by something I saw. It happened that I was writing a story about some other topic, but I the the moment stayed with me, and then I returned to it later um, in fiction. So, I mean, I think it depends. Like the some sometimes life, real life, is pretty over the top, but then other times you want to go over the top yourself in your story. So, do you, do you get different rewards from um, completing like a short, a fictional short story versus like an article? I mean, how how is it different for you? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what probably keeps me sane, the mix of deadlines, because, uh, I mean, as I said, it took four, more than 14 years to, for this book to get published, whereas if I'm writing a column or um, working on a piece of journalism, it'll be published within weeks or hours, weeks or months. So you, and then you can feel... Sometimes when you're, if you, if I was only writing fiction, you might feel like I'm, is anyone listening? You're like shouting into the void, whereas there's more um, instant feedback uh, with journalism. But at the same time, the appeal of fiction is just, um, I, I think about the stories I read when I was a kid, um, stories about characters who didn't come from my background or 
era, but I still was able to relate to them. In that same way, I hope that my stories, you know, people can relate to it or find something in it um, that compels them or changes, uh, causes them to think differently in a way that maybe a newspaper that winds up in the recycling bin the next day doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think also the the thing that I love, and I know you can be reading from something else, yeah, and from a totally different point of view, but I just love how you inhabited so many different types of people, from a young Latino boy to you know um, yuppies to you know immigrant. <laughs> I mean, the whole and. I'm just wondering, were you always the type of person um, when you were little that you could, you loved to walk in other people's shoes, or do you think your training as a journalist kind of enhanced that, or what? Do, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think you're touching on everything. Um, I mean, I was a big reader as a kid, as many of you here probably were too, and just that opportunity to. Um, explore other worlds and then that definitely drives my journalism trying to get closer to to close that gap that's between all of us and and our understanding and I think um, I just I mean being a journalist is great you it's you have the freedom to explore your every curiosity and ask people questions I remember I had a job interview once and uh, for, for a journalism job and someone started asking me something and I replied and there, there was multiple interviewers and the, someone said, oh, why are you asking questions? And then someone pointed out that that was just sort of who I was, that I wanted to f- find out about other people. So um, I got the job. Uh, so... <laughs> That's always a good idea for, yeah, that's a good hint for, if you go for a job interview, start asking them questions, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, you know, you talked about this took you about 14, 15 years, right, to pull together. And I know that it was a hard road because you wanted, right, yeah. to get your fiction published and it, it was a long road. But one thing that occurred to me when I was reading your your work was there's so many rich, like, concrete details in there in, you know, all of the stories. And I was just thinking, if you were fresh out of um, college, that it would be hard for you to have all those, you know, have those, probably your own life experiences, your own travels, I'm assuming probably helped um, give all of your work kind of a richness. So what do you think? Do you think that if this, you had finished a collection right out of getting your MFA, that it would have been the same as the collection we have today? Yeah, it's sort of uh, that whole sliding doors question, like what would the book have been like if it came out before? Um, I, I mean, I think to the extent, there's no one story in the collection that's purely autobiographical where it's thinly veiled or anything like that. But it definitely reflects moments like the the woman I saw when we went backpacking, the sol- who was a solo hiker, or the conversation I had with someone about what happened on his missionary trip, or, I, I mean, books I read, it all, even in ways that I can't even tell, there's probably influences um, that are imprinted all over the book that reflect, like, the rings of a tree, as I was saying yeah. in the... Uh, the just who who I am and who I was. So yeah, definitely the book would have been different because I had different life experiences. Yeah, but was it hard for you to keep going on? You oh, know, 
in, in terms of trying to get your work published, or can you go more into like oh, the sure. whole publishing journey? Or yeah. How how did this even come to be? You know? So so this won um, the Willow Books uh, 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 Prize in Literature. Um, so the public, you know, you get prize money and they publish the book, and so it won last year. But I'd been submitting to journals for years, story by story, and getting them published. But each time you submit to a journal, sometimes you'd have to uh, uh, submit three, four, 20 times before it would get published. Um, and then, meanwhile, I was also trying to learn how to become, um, how to write a novel. And I went off, I well, I was also First, I was working as a journalist. Then I decided to get back into writing with community writing groups and writing conferences. And then I took the plunge of leaving my job and going to UCR. My UCR peeps here. Um, and then still, and then having kids and trying to manage that. And also, I mean, there's a whole other discussion. Like my first novel went out and made the rounds and didn't sell. And so. I was then still writing these short stories and decided to take the contest route, which is often the route for short stories. Um, and then my two novels just so happened to have sold uh, like six months later after the the uh, I'd won the contest. And I've had people ask, oh, how do you have three books coming out? Because I've been working the last, you know, 15 years on it. So it, it just everything, um, it, it takes patients that you ask like well would you have done this if you'd known this from the beginning and I, I don't know maybe that's how we just get through life because we don't know <laughs> what's to come can you read from the next oh sure yeah. okay. and then maybe we could take questions from everybody yeah. this is from the story the older the ginger sometime after lunch old Wu realized he'd been kidnapped on the way from the airport his cousin had taken a detour. If he'd driven in circles or gone the wrong direction, old Wu wouldn't have known the difference. More than a half century ago, he left the hills green with pine and bamboo for San Francisco and hadn't returned since. His cousin wasn't the son of an aunt or an uncle, but a relative of some kind from the village who possessed a wreck of a car and had volunteered to fetch old Wu. Less than an hour into the drive, his cousin parked in front of a concrete building, a restaurant famous for the local specialty, Geilong, rice flour dumplings pleated in the shape of ingots. They were the only customers at the only table and the only staff his cousin's daughter, Little Treasure. She hovered, simpering and smiling like a courtesan. It was startling to find himself in high demand after his years among the bachelors of Chinatown. Finding a wife had been a competitive endeavor, and old Wu hadn't much to differentiate himself as a suitor, just another Chinatown waiter turned cook. By the time families crammed into Chinatown's tenements, it was too late to start his own. Then his mother had written, insisting old Wu marry. She was 93. He was 76. <laughs> Come back, she told him. Come back and find a wife. Little Treasure dropped off toothpicks in a bowl of lychees and poured another cup of tea, but he refrained from drinking. He had a long ride ahead to the village. His leaky bladder didn't need more pressure, and the strong brew made him jittery. A few minutes ago, his cousin had excused himself to urinate, and old Wu should too. But when he tried to turn the handle of the restaurant's front door, it didn't budge. It must be stuck, 
the wooden frame warped and swollen. Hey, hey, he shouted. Little treasure tugged on his elbow. Uncle, eat. She looked at him coyly from beneath her lashes. Does it taste like how you remember? We filled ours with air, he said. During his childhood, his family ate meat only once a year during the spring festival. But this young girl had never known such want, only China on the rise and none of its turmoil. Turmoil that he had largely escaped by moving to America. The stunted crops and starvation of the Great Leap Forward, the book burnings and beatings of the Cultural Revolution, decades of strife and deprivation that his parents had spared him. He knocked again and leaned his weight against the door. Locked. He searched for another exit, but didn't see another door, and the sole window was too small to squeeze through. He'd heard of brides abducted by grooms, but never a kidnapped groom. <laughs> his cousin must want to present his daughter to Old Wu to make her the first and most memorable candidate for marriage and the green card that came along with the deal. In time, she could sponsor her parents, her siblings, their spouses, and their children to immigrate, a prize his, her father wouldn't let slip out of his fingers. Uncle, eat. In a tight t-shirt and flared jeans, little treasure was as tall as him and twice as strong with the muscular arms of a model revolutionary. She could level weeds and enemies alike. She could pin him to the narrow bed he, that he now noticed beneath a calendar of beer models. Uncle, he'll be back soon. Sit, sit, you've had a long flight. He settled in his chair. Even if he escaped, he didn't know where he was or how far he'd have to walk to his village. Soon enough, his cousin would have to understand that love at first sight hadn't transpired. Little Treasure dug her fingers into his shoulders. His uncle let me. She needed the knots. She needed the knots in his neck. His hand, her hand crept to his thigh and he pushed it away. Let me help you, she whispered. Her face burned. He shuffled away, wondering if his cousin was spying through a crack, trying to catch old Wu in an indelicate position. Little Treasure wept, burying her face into her hands. Young maiden, he began. Young? Her cheeks glittered with tears. You should see who they have picked out for you. Girls pried from their dolls. I'm a leftover woman. You don't want an old ginger root like me, old Wu said. The older the ginger, the hotter the spice, she said. <laughs> when is he coming back, he said. As long as it takes, she said. You're my last chance. You're not old enough to be thinking about the end, he said. No one wants meat that's gone off. She pushed the bowl of lychees towards him, which he ate to cleanse his greasy mouth. Juicy and sweet, its flesh snowy white. He spit the shiny pit into his cup palm, and he had another, savoring the sweetness of sultry summer nights. His mother used to peel lychees from, digging in her thumbnail to break the flesh. Old Wu had been his mother's firstborn and her favorite. When he was very young, he followed her to the river where she beat laundry against the rocks. How mighty she'd seemed, warm mud squishing between his toes, sunshine heavy on his cheek, and the smell of the river of wind on water and churned earth. Little treasure cleared the table, and he smelled the dank musk of her, straw and loamy soil, and all at once he remembered his boyhood the life he'd left behind, and he was overcome with longing for this lost world. He closed his eyes, inhaling. That's kind of a familiar scenario. 
um, to me. But what was the inspiration behind that story? I was going to Chinatown to interview this gentleman, this older gentleman, about his housing situation. Mm-hmm. And the woman who answered the door was quite young and beautiful. And I thought it must be his nurse or a daughter. Turned out it was his wife. And similar to the story, his mother had demanded he come home to find someone from the village. So, but that day I just asked him about his housing. So, but it always stuck with me. And also I'd done reporting in China where I saw how these villages were hollowed out. Mm -hmm. It was just the very old taking care of the very young, the, the grandkids. And just that sense of desperation but also wiliness. They would do whatever it took to to survive and make it in this world. So it got got me thinking about what a Chinatown bachelor might represent to the young ladies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's great. So can you just, so this book, what, when was its official pub, pub date? Oh, uh, September 30th. September 30th. So brand you, new. Right. So can you just tell us how the experience has been and what you've kind of learned from publishing and... Um, Sure, yeah. Um, well, one thing that I thought was was useful for me and for a lot, uh, folks in the audience who are wondering, like, how do I go about this? Because it's with a small press, so I wound up doing a lot of it myself. Um, just don't be afraid to ask. You know, I reached out to Naomi and said, would you be willing to be in conversation with me? Um, I mailed galleys to Oprah Magazine, and they reviewed it. Like, you just, you never know without trying mm-hmm. um, and other uh, something else that I learned is that we all know that Amazon has magic algorithms but 50 seems to be the number for um, if you can get 50 reviews then it'll help uh, just raise the visibility of it so I've been if so if you like this book or any book out there it really helps authors I think especially ones without big marketing budgets um, just spread the word about their books. But buy it from Skylight Books. Yes. yes. That's, that's a true guerrilla um, effort against Amazon. Buy it from your local indie, but then review it on Amazon. <laughs> so do we have any questions? Anybody? Yes. Uh, yes. Do you, think, do you think approaching a novel or, or, or a collection as a journalist is a different way of approaching Well, I remember something that happened in grad school. It was probably in my first workshop. And I wrote something, um, and then a comment in class was, that's not, uh, that's not fiction, that's reportage. And I wanted to bolt up and say, but reporting is the, is the foundation of democracy. But later, I, I, I came to understand what that meant, um, in the sense that journalism is more about a dispassionate um, a recounting of the of the situation of the facts without that sort of um, sense of a filter or a consciousness that that uh, that fiction needs to go through that this is there's a sensibility that the writing needs to go through that isn't necessarily in a like a, a daily news article so um, but at the same time I think my fiction has influenced my journalism in the years since I went to grad school and focused on fiction because I think I'm more now willing to not only bring my voice into my interactions with or you know like a hybrid of essay and reporting that allows me to bring in that voice that I started developing grad school. 
That's a really interesting question because I'm also from a journalistic background as well. I really relate to Vanessa's work and um, a Japanese um, academician was like analyzing my work and said my fiction and said it had this journalistic quality to it. And I go, what? <laughs> Those are fighting words. Right. Like, what do you mean by that? But I come to see, I think... Um, because I have an interest, and maybe you do too, Vanessa, in kind of not only looking through a singular individual's experience, yeah. but maybe a whole community community experience or the context of why that person is in the situation that they're in in the first place, you know. So I think in my own work, I kind of weave that in. And so I, I've come to, you know, accept it. Like, it's okay. It's not a necessarily a slight, but... Yeah. Right. Or we all come to our our writing from different places. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I have a question for you. Yes, Vanessa. <laughs> well, I, I think it'd be a good opportunity to talk about representation. And I understand that one of your books is in the process. There's a big Kickstarter around it. And maybe you could talk about that and we could talk about the importance of representation. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's very interesting. I think the whole f- indie film world is totally opposite... Um, being a writer, because as a writer, we we can just be in our little you know rooms and just go, you know all we need is some kind of writing implement and just create our worlds. And then with with film, it's like you need the money and you need all the things you know all together even before you start creating. But um, yeah, so it's called the um, the big bachi and there's this is probably this is let's see I think I guess either the second or third time that. One of my works have have been optioned, and some of I write in the kind of mystery genre. But a lot of my colleagues they they have multiple options, or many things are already being in the works, you know, to be made into movies. And I think for me, it's my character. One of my sleuths is an old Japanese American gardener who uh, works out of a place called Altadena, California. <laughs> and, yeah, but it's like he's he 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 was old and also. Also, he's Japanese-American, and they just said, you know, we just can't make this quite work. Has anyone Um, ever suggested, like, well, what if this character were white? No, (laughs) no, I mean, I think not necessarily, but, uh, you know, it is, I I think we've come to a really interesting time in our um, society in terms of the arts, and there's all this attention on diversity and inclusion, which is good, but I think... um, I think the main thing is how do we develop our reader? I mean, it's for every author out there. Is how do we develop our readership? How do we uh, develop our audience? Because right now, unfortunately, there's not as many bookstores, right? When I started out in, um, when my first novel came out uh, 12, 13 years ago, there was probably at least two or three times the number of bookstores, you know, and I'm specialty bookstores. And so, and, and that's how people like kind of find, um, like people that I write, you know, books, you know, about these kind of marginalized people, they kind of, you know, look at a bookshelf and pick up a book and that's how it's discovered. And I think the internet is a whole nother way, you know, it's, it's very different. So I think it's, um, as you enter in your career, you know, Vanessa, it is a whole process. We have to devote our careers not only to writing, but um, figuring out who are who the audience is for our work. I mean, I've talked to Lisa C., you know, who's a very popular writer of Chinese-American themed books, and she goes, you know, on a lot of... Um, 
tour, book, book tours, and she told me, you know, she'll go into some communities and they'll say, well, I don't read books about Chinese people. You know, they'll just say that. And it's, so that's something that we, you know, kind of one additional obstacle that we have to deal with. But um, it's certainly looking a lot brighter than it has in the past. But um, yeah, if, if anyone has any solutions or suggestions, that would be great. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I just thought it was so interesting with the, the John Cho hashtag earlier this year, starring John Cho, who's a um, movie, um, movie star, and they would take his face and Photoshop it into... Hollywood blockbusters to show like look he is just as handsome as talented as Matt Damon and it was just those images were very arresting because it just shows I think sort of like the block people have in perceiving that this character can be represent every man just just as well Yes. Yeah, yeah. I have another question along those lines because you mentioned that there is a new um, desire or, or an increasing desire among publishers to seek out diversity. And I'm wondering if you've also noticed at all, either of you, that, um, that sometimes even though people say that they want diversity, they already have a preconceived notion in their mind of what diversity means, like what it means to get a story from a Chinese person or a Hispanic person or a black person. Like, uh, they already know what that diversity is going to look like, and then they're looking at you through this this filter. Like they already have it in mind. Have you come across any of that? Well. Samurais are really cool, right? <laughs> and geisha girls are really cool. People in kimono are really cool. I mean, I think um, certainly there's, uh, if you can easily fill in a certain kind of slot that seems, um, you know, exotic and cool, you know, I mean, it's easier to get to that place. Um you know, there's a lot of, uh, it's kind of, I, I think there's some, like, television shows that involve martial arts, you know, and it seems like, you know, that's one way that these shows get on the air involving, you know, like, Asian characters. So, I, yeah, I, I think I think it's a challenge, too. I mean, there's this whole, like, cra Crazy Rich Asians, right, which was a, a big hit. And I think that's going to influence what we see on TV. I think there's gonna, either a reality show or something. They're looking for rich Asian people. <laughs> oh, right. I think there's a reality show out of Vancouver. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's it, so we're, we're always kind of fighting. Like, I think the kind of people we write about are more, you know, I, I write a lot about people who are more on the lower income spectrum, and that doesn't really, that's not very sexy either, right? Pe we all want rich people. So so there's a lot of, you know, various challenges, but I think the main thing is to um, be committed to what you're writing about and also to network with people, you know, who are doing the same thing. And because I think it, it's not going to happen just with one, the, you know, like um, we have a Pulitzer Prize winner who's Asian American. Vin, oh, Michael Lowe. Yeah. yeah and uh, and Vit, Vin Vin Nguyen. Nguyen, and it's really exciting, but it, it can't be just like that one person, you know, it has to be a whole movement of people, I think, in order to really see any kind of systemic um, changes. Yeah. And I mean, for myself personally, I, 
haven't yet encountered the sort of commercial pushback, but I'm sort of just starting that part of the journey. But I do remember when my my um, my novel went out on submission the first time, uh, one editor said, oh, we like it, but we have another Chinese author on the list. So you only get one. So there's just, I mean, there's the writing part of it where you toil and you just have to, you have to be totally committed to what you're doing because you're just by yourself and wondering. You, But then there's the publishing side of it and that's a different reality. So... Jackie. I have many questions for you, but one is <laughs> okay. related to the conversation that you're having about how the marketplace is narrow. It sounds almost like you're saying the marketplace is narrowing um, through online purchases. So do you feel like there's less representation of people of color and Asian American writers through the online purchases that there was when there were more books posted? I'd read somewhere that Amazon accounts for 50 or 60 percent of sales. So, um, but if anything, this, there's a rise of small presses. So in that sense, there's more opportunities to get something unusual, or I don't want to say unusual, something not from the mainstream published. But the question is, how will anyone find it? So there's, there's, there's more publishing now, I think, than ever before, but but the, the audience is cr increasingly carved up or just even people um, getting published through a major house, like there's no guarantee that it will, you know, on your launch day, will the phone ring or will you just be, will just nothing happen, so. I think what's hard is like as writers, well, I guess as journalists, we kind of understand marketing to some degree, but there's some writers who don't want to, they don't want to get into social media, they don't want to, and I don't blame them, but it's almost like a requirement now um, that we get involved with Facebook and Instagram and everything because how else are people going to, you know, find out about our work? So it, it, it's really tough, especially for the uh, really hardcore introverts out there, I think. For the people who are used to spending most of the day by themselves. So. <laughs> Robin. Um, hi. Um, I wanted to get back to this idea of deceit because you've been working on this for a long time, as you say, in this year, in this moment, there's never been more distrust of journalists, there's never been more of a sense of people creating their own reality. Right. right? And I'm wondering what your opinion is of that, since you've been had a foot in both worlds now for a while, as you move forward as a journalist, do you see that, I mean, is there... Is there a chance for it to recapture the idea that there is a kind of impartial reality, or is that just gone? Is it all? I mean, Reza always used to say, "There's no such thing as a reliable narrator, right? Every, everything, to some degree, is, is through a filter." Right. So, you know. Well, I used to joke that if you really want to know what the impartial journalist thought, see what the kicker quote was at the end. So, because they'll either put the person they agree with at the end, or if it's something egregious, it's an ironic ending. So that's like the truest sign of like what the journalist actually thinks. So I mean, even with um, impartial journalism, you're 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 choosing, you're pitching the story, you're choosing which story to write, and you're choosing which facts to assemble. So, um, but and then there's that whole discussion of false equivalencies. Like, do you give each side the same um, like? You know, this this is what Hillary did. This is what Trump did. And let's just say that they're equal in scale. Um, I mean, I I, th I think it's uh, 
I don't know. I'm, I actually think that the landscape has become such that everyone ends up in their own echo chamber. So mm-hmm. the people, the things that you click like on, you just keep getting more of that in your feed. Um, and so you, it's hard to imagine like what's outside of that. And so each the the sides are growing farther and farther apart, which is very troubling. Yeah. Would you like uh, more? What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's something that always interests me because I'm a writer. Yeah. I always have a point of view. And I don't actually think objective truth is a strange idea. Yeah. You know, every, everybody sees through their own, the filter of their own experience. But we're at a place now where nobody trusts anybody's point of view. Yeah. And, and you know, as you move forward as, as a young journalist, I'm just curious how you want to count. I mean, you're, you're, of course, in the Bay Area. I mean, we're, we're for that sort of band of people who believe this thing. How do you communicate that you're going to go back to Riverside? I mean, how do you recapture a sense of, of Edward R. Murrow or, or some kind of trust in, 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 a, in a wider audience, I guess? Well, with my columns, for example, I have a friend who will often read over my columns, and I call her my VP of inclu- inclusivity. <laughs> Because she'll she'll offer suggestions for like how do I broaden this? I mean, maybe this is cliche or cheesy to say, but I, I would have to hope that a good story can can bring people together, right? Because then they can start to understand where someone's coming from, um, even if they don't agree with them. So I, I don't want to get into a big political discussion, but I do think it's really interesting with the Trump tapes that were you know provided by Access Hollywood and Billy Bush and you know he's with NBC and it's supposedly supposed to be news and the whole you know they're having this big debate like did NBC News know about the tapes beforehand or you know did they just decide to release it right now and just so you know where's the dividing line especially with broadcast news between quote entertainment right and news and then why are they hiring this type of person to deliver the news? It's just very interesting in the whole notion about uh, journalistic integrity and you know those kind of things. I, I think are starting to come out of like kind of dissect, dissecting that whole thing. But yeah, I, I would like. I mean, I think we bemoan right the whole nature of uh, journalist. You know, journalism today I don't know about you but it, it's sad to me that so many newspapers are folding and you know yeah when I when I left daily news in 2007 I joked with friends that it was like a burning house sliding off a cliff <laughs> that's what it kind of felt like but on the other hand um, I did feel since then there have been the rise of so many interesting um, news sites like Vox or Fusion or BuzzFeed and the the biggest scoops out of this election have come out of newspapers the New York Mm -hmm. Times and Washington Post so again I'll say subscribe to your daily paper it's a vote for democracy so yeah Amy sorry yeah Um, how did you decide what order to put the stories in, in the collection? I, I was sort of trying to find the uh, the logic to it, and I was like, I had my own idea of what you were doing there, but I'm curious. Yeah, there initially, when I think I sent it to the competition, um, the locksmith story was the first one. But then I thought that it would be sort of intriguing for the first line of the book to be, perhaps you've heard of me, of a debut novel, or of a debut short story collection. Um, I also wanted something, a sort of... Um, 
a, a more high energy story. It, it involves a, a pop star fling a sex scandal in Hong Kong. So I thought, okay, what's going to keep the pages turning? Um, and then I was just, with the order, I was like, well, I want to make sure there's two camping stories, two very different stories, but I don't want them like side by side. Otherwise, they'll be like, she's obsessed with camping equipment. <laughs> so I put some distance between it. Um, and then I chose the final story. It's the longest story. I felt like it sort of um, kind of ref reflected and then sort of built upon all the themes that I'd been putting in the the book and then sort of the final image left us in a place that I wanted um, that I, that I wanted, but it, 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 at UCR, um, Michael Jaime, my professor, had a class called uh, what was it like mixtape short stories or? Anyway, it, we I mean it's a, it's a big thing to try and figure out. Um, you know, we labored over our mixtapes when we were teenagers, like what order it should go in to provide the secret code to our loved one or to our best friends. So in that same way, you hope that the collection, um, that the stories can hang individually yet also be satisfying as a whole. So, yeah. You should have like vote vote for the short story that most resonates with you or something yeah. like that. <laughs> well, it, it has been interesting to see because different people have written me and said, oh, my favorite story is this. And it's all been different ones. Yeah. So, And I have to say, I did the story about the Japanese-American middle-aged woman um, resonated with me, <laughs> surprisingly. <laughs> but, it, but it's a very sad story, too. <laughs> it's hopeful at the end. <laughs> so how are we doing on time, I Noah? Think we'll, uh, we'll end with one last question. Okay. Uh, I have the last question, so if anyone doesn't have a question, I can ask my question. I will ask my question. Okay. Uh, and this is um, this is regarding um, MFA programs, actually. So I know people are, are sort of, there's been a lot of discussion around the MFA program, and there's also been controversy around the MFA program. Does the MFA program get your career, or is it two years of running away? You know, <laughs> or is it also, is there's also this, this discussion about a lack of diversity in MFA programs, that it's primarily, you know, it's, it's catered to a provider particular kind of voice. Did you, um, what was your experience in an MFA program? And I say this knowing that we have an MFA <laughs> a professor here, uh, probably several of us here, but um, you know, what was your experience and would you recommend it? I think for me, do you have an MFA or? No. Yeah. I think what I really enjoyed my time in the MFA program, but I think it helped that I was in my early 30s. I didn't, and I had a much stronger sense of what I wanted and who I was. Not to say that a 22-year-old can't either, but I don't think I was, I was in a better place to get exactly what I wanted out of the program. So, but yeah, I mean, often, um, I, I think UCR is a bit unusual too because its staff is diverse, so I never, but then I've heard of people in programs where it's sort of like they always wind up having to explain, people are like, well, why don't you write about food? I love reading about your culture's food or there'll be like a, again, this didn't happen to me, but I'm just, I'm saying, or like people will say, um, this this uh, this this moment of discrimination you're describing in the story that's impossible. People wouldn't act like that. So they get right, right, or just um, or having to like raise your hand and be like you know you well. At the same time, when you're in workshop, you kind of fall into your roles, like the person who's going to say this or this or this. But then there's this um, burden I think that can be that some minority students can feel that they're like supposed to speak for like to be explained like the encyclopedia or like. 
oh, we're, you're writing about this? What do you think kind of moment? So, I mean, I think um, the MFAs are more popular than ever before, right? I think there's, but it's just, but it's like anything. It's, um, you, you form the community that you want. It's really, a lot of it does, is always going to, the experience you have is going to be predicated on what you put into it. So, did, any, did anyone other, do you have any thoughts on it or? No. Or maybe you could say why, <laughs> or did you feel like your journalism career was enough training to, how did you find writing community if, and, and time and space to write if not through an MFA? Well, I did go through UCLA Extension, mm-hmm. you know, but for me, um, I didn't have the money, you know, and it's, I mean, it's simply that. And I just, I learn more by doing I'm, I'm just that type of person, even though I did go to Stanford. But, <laughs> but I, you know, ex- experience to me is like the best teacher for me. Yeah. And there's a lot of great com- writing communities, too. too. Okay, thanks so much. And no- oh, 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 okay, a raffle. Oh, okay, yeah. You have a raffle going on? Yeah. yeah. I always do raffles, too. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. Um, what see. are you giving, Vanessa? Well, uh, 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 why don't you, you could be my Vanna White. I, I certainly will. Okay. And this is what I tell, although it may not be as necessary with this crowd, with my crowd, is get out your reading glasses. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right, Noel? <laughs> okay, the winning number is... Five six six eight seven seven eight. Oh, oh! You are the recipient of a delicious bag of white rabbit candy. <laughs> Nostalgic for all Asians everywhere. Okay. Another one? Yes. Oh, there's oh. three. There's. Oh, I accidentally put his, <laughs> his oh. back here. <laughs> and you know, it's always nice to share too. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay, five, six, six. Okay, I, I should just read the last seven, nine, three. The last three is seven, nine, three. Oh, oh. you are the recipient of a liquid branded moleskin. <laughs> they seem like they're going to the right people, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. okay. And the last three is seven, nine, four. That, was that you? No. Okay. Seven nine four. Seven nine four. Nobody. Seven nine four. Okay. Oh, exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, seven eight three. Yay! Okay. You are the recipient of books from my press. Oh well, not my press. The press I'm with. But here. Yeah. Aren't you glad you came? <laughs> so thank you so much, everyone, for coming. Please get wine, cookies, and a temporary tattoo. Yeah. yeah. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.